Welcome to the Parang Sessions. In this episode, Richard and Arthur Lowe, the grandsons of artist Lo Kui Song, share with us little-known facts and anecdotes about their grandfather, from years of research, as well as their own memories of him. Thank you for joining us today. I'm honoured to be sitting here with Mr. Richard and Arthur Lo, grandsons of Mr. Lo Kui Song. So Mr. Lo Kui Song has been credited as one of the first local-born artists in Singapore. In Kwok Kian Charles, Channels and Confluences, a history of Singapore art in 1996, Lo Kui Song's The Links and Thai Temple that you see behind us have been credited as examples of early 20th century art in Singapore. Yet, there has been little written about Mr. Lo Kui Song. So through, through this talk and our joint presentation, Mr. Richard and Arthur Lowe will tell us their story of how they themselves attempt to cover, recover the histories of their grandfather and what they have learned. So uh, Mr. Richard and Arthur Lowe, can you tell us what exactly embarked, what exactly inspired you to embark on this discovery? Okay. Uh, when we were very young, we were always told by our parents our aunties and uncles, that Lao Kui Song, our grandfather, was a great artist. But we were not able to find his name mentioned in any art history books, except a line or two in Sir Song Ong Siang's book, which, was the, which is in the 100 years history of Chinese in Singapore. In fact, in our younger days, we both would... Uh, visit bookshops, shops like uh, MPH, uh, popular bookshops, uh, and those you know, bookshops along Braspasa Road last time, and even shopping centres around Singapore. We cannot find anything on Lao Kui Song. So, um, how do you go about trying to find out more about him, actually? Okay, so we decided that we need to do something about it. Otherwise, his name will be lost in history, in the Singapore art history. It will never come up again. So what we did was uh, we did research using resources in the National Library, like the old newspapers. And also we had some newspapers that were collected by our parents, our aunties, uh, regarding Lao Kui Song and his works. Uh, we also went through the internet, of course, as time goes on, you know. We talked to our relatives also, our parents, and eventually we decided, after many uh, discussions, that we should go to Malacca to make a trip there. Because we knew that uh, Lao Kui Song has uh, very nice art pieces in Malacca. Uh, so we made a trip there. It was very uh, fruitful. And we also found out that Lao Kui Song had a studio in Malacca situated not very far from the city. And although the studio was an old kind of attap studio, attap house kind of studio, it was on a large piece of land. Uh, about, I think I was told about 50,000 square feet. Yeah. That was in Ching in Malacca. 
So uh, before we start on the story of Lo Gui Song, can I just ask you what were your personal memories of him? As for myself, uh, my grandfather was always a kind and humorous man. He was also very talkative. <laughs> he spoke fluent English. He writes fluent English. Uh, and also Baba Malay. Ma, Baba Malay. Uh, he could also converse in Chinese dialects, you know, and a little bit of Mandarin. I remember once at the request of my mother, uh, he gave me a lesson on drawing. <laughs> I never liked drawing. <laughs> uh, that was how to draw an animal. So he started with two circles, the head and the body, and so on and so on, and there appeared an animal. Uh, and this was the last lesson from him that I got. Also, I remembered him as a person who always encouraged me as a young boy to become a doctor. He always told me that uh, we need a doctor in the house, you know. People are getting older every day. But that did not happen. <laughs> yeah. So, I just wanted to start off by saying that uh, Lo Kui Song is a self-taught artist and he may have learned art from his brother Lo Kui Su, who is seven years older than him. Lo Kui Su's talent was recognized by Tan Bun Chin, who is the brother-in-law of Sir Song Ong Xiang, the first street Chinese to be knighted in Singapore and also the first Chinese barrister. But during those times, art was not a favored occupation. Lo Kui Su and Lo Kui Song's father objected fervently However, after uh, Kui Su was paid $80 for a portrait of Sir John Anderson, their father, who earned $40 a month then, actually relented and allowed them to continue to practice their art. So what you see here are actually photos uh, of Lo Kui Su in his studio. And not only did he do life-size portraits, but he also painted sceneries for plays. And what we have here on the right is actually a portrait of Tan Jiak Kim, which is in the National Museum's collection. And also, uh, when we talk about the absence of Lo Kui Song in the history, um, in Song Ong Xiang's publications, 100 Years History of Chinese in Singapore, Lo Kui Su actually expresses regret that he was born in a generation when his art cannot be freely and fully displayed as his customers cannot appreciate them. Eventually, he retired in Bangkok and was last known to have worked in the medical services. So Lo Kui Song in Song Ong Xiang's book was also only introduced in relation with uh, Lo Kui Su as well. So Arthur can tell us a bit more uh, in terms of Lo Kui Song's background. Yep, their family history. Oh, Richard. Oh, Richard, sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, will introduce, I will introduce to you Lao Kui Song as a young boy. Uh, Lao Kui Song's mother died when he was very young and he was brought up by his maternal grandparents who doted on him. They lived in a black and white bungalow at Scotts Road at that time. Uh, his passion for art started at a very young, young age of about nine years old. Uh, Song was educated actually at Raffles Institution, which today is, uh, no, it was at Raffles School. Today is uh, RI, you know, from 1900 to 1906. His artistic talent was recognized by both his teachers and students at Raffles School at that time. In school, 
He won awards for his map work and sketches of animals. He earned extra money, extra pocket money, by drawing charcoal sketches that were used for ancestral worship for the people in the tuck shop, as well as others who requested him to draw their loved ones. He was then charging them 50 cents per portrait. That was a lot of money for a young boy, about 10 years or so, you know. With this extra money, Lao Kui Song uh, later was able to pursue correspondent courses like photography, psychology, and chronology. So, how much do you think... So, Lo Kui Song actually finally became a professional artist in the late 1910s. So, how much do you think he actually charged people for portraits then? So, anybody wants to guess? <laughs> So just to give you a bit of the context, uh, back then, a quarter cent could buy you a plate of curry rice with potatoes and pop chop. And rickshaw was about three cents a mile. Yeah. So I guess it's a bit difficult. So, uh, so sorry. This is an image of him when he was young and uh, with a portrait of Ui Tiong Ham. And this was an advertisement he actually put in the newspapers. And maybe uh, Richard want to talk a bit about this. Okay, from what I found out during our, we found out during our research, uh, bank club at that time, you know, they were earning about $40 a month and a supervisor or a junior manager, they were earning about $60 a month. So what Lao Kui Song is getting is much more than these people. And because of that, he was also motivated to work harder. Uh, this was done in uh, 1917. Um, we found a few more uh, uh, paintings of this sort. And uh, I went to check it out and uh, was trying to know what style this was. So uh, I was thinking, because uh, it's only... To, uh, a few colors and the brown is uh, mainly used for the, the whole painting. So uh, at first I thought it was called monochronic, but it was not because I, I, I'm no art uh, expert. But when I check again and again and again, it took me days. Uh, the word is Anne Brunelli. This is an Anne Brunelli work. In the 1500s, this was very popular. So, uh, Lo Kui Song actually did a few of this in uh, 1917. And we think that, so far we found four pieces of uh, this sort of work. Uh, we think it's called a, an assemble of work during that time, a, a set of four. But we have yet to confirm it. Uh, we'll do some more search and uh, we'll see uh, what the National Gallery can help us with. What other activities were uh, Lo Kui Song involved in? I, I understand he was the honorary instructor of uh, the Amateur Drawing Association. Perhaps yeah, uh, Richard uh, would like to say something about that? Maybe before that, uh, uh, coming back to animal paintings, uh, Lo Kui Song as a young boy 
from what we understand, was always fascinated with wild animals and horses. Uh, and we also found out that Lao Kui Song and his brother Kui Su were both members of the Singapore Volunteer Infantry during the British time. So they were trained how to shoot. And they went shooting together. Uh, yeah, around 1907. So Kui Song and the brother used to do hunting together. And he also did a lot of hun hunting when he was in Thailand. Kui Song was in Thailand for a short while. And also horse owners. We were told by our relatives, our aunties, my parents, that horse owners, race horse owners, as far as Penang, commissioned my grandfather to paint for them. And they treated him very well at the time. So moving on, uh, Lo Kui Song was also the instructor of the Amateur Drawing Association. So the term amateur was used then for people who practice art for leisure and not as a livelihood. This association is composed of mainly Chinese and the activities included drawing, literary pursuits and physical culture. They also organized sketching parties regularly. And Lo Kui Song also became a judge in the association's competition in 1912. In 1916, he was presented with a medal for his contributions. So just to give a bit of uh, context for this uh, drawing association. So it's important to note that the other notable association and club was the Singapore Art Club, which was composed mainly of Europeans. And invitations were rarely made to the other ethnicities to participate in their exhibitions. One member of the Singapore Art Club that some of you may know of is Margaret Falcon, who is known for her watercolour scenes in Singapore, and of which the National Collection has some of her works. And it is notable then, then therefore, that in 1912, Mr. Lo Song was actually invited and exhibited several animal studies, and he even won an award for a portrait. Yeah. Maybe Richard... Okay, uh, I would like to say something about... Uh, again. Now, after finishing Raffles School, he worked as a clerk in Singapore, but he was not too happy about it. So later on, he was given an opportunity to work in Thailand for his uncle who owned a tin mining company. In Bangkok, Lao Kui Song learned to learn learned to speak old Thai language. I don't I don't think they use it now. He wrote on elephants and made friends with the Thai princes and senior officials of the Thai palace. There in Thailand, he was still painting oil portraits of people, animals, and Thai sceneries whenever he found time to do that. And he was in Bangkok where he met his wife, our grandmother, uh, Chan. You knew. She was a Singaporean Peranakan whose father worked in a multinational company, Windsor and Company. Kui Song married her in 1910. After their marriage, Lao Kui Song raised, uh, realized that he had to reconsider his career path. He decided to be a full time artist and he believed that. He had a talent for painting, 
and it was what he enjoyed doing most. The couple believed that Singapore would be a better place for their career and for raising their family. So they moved back to Singapore from Bangkok. Uh, yeah, I think Shujuan has, has uh, told you all that uh, in 1911, at the age of 11, uh, at the age of 22, Lao Kui Song was invited to be the honorary art instructor of the Singapore Amateur Drawing Association, in which Dr. Lim Boon King and Sir Song Ong Song, uh, Sir Song Ong Siang were actively involved. So in context of this, um, Lo Kui Song was also one of the early straight Chinese to open an art studio. So this is in the context of people's perception that art cannot simply sustain the bread and butter of daily lives. And this was probably one of the, uh, the first of many companies that uh, Lo Kui Song would open up in relation to its artistic and cultural activities. You will see some more later. However, times must be hard and there, must be, there was a lack of work as uh, Lo Kui Song went to Bangkok in 1920s to briefly to work for his uncle. So after taking part in the annual exhibition of the local arts club held at the Singapore Tangling Club, actually, and it was attended by a large number of members of the public. Lady Evelyn Young, wife of the governor of the Strait Settlement, officiated at the opening of this exhibition. As Shujan said earlier, Kui Song received a prize for the oil portrait of the late father of C.M. Phillips, the then principal of Raffles School. With the encouragement of the governor's wife and Mr. Phillips, Kui Song started his own studio. He called it the Raffles Art Studio in 1920. Initially, Lao Kui Song had a difficult time with the business and his wife had to sell her jewellery to support the business and the family. But his passion for art made him persevere. His first break came when he was given the commission to draw the entire scenery of the pantomime Cinderella. The patron was the governor of the Strait Settlements of that time, Sir Arthur Young. Can you say something about Cinderella? No, um, in fact, uh, the Cinderella uh, uh, work that he did later on propelled him into art and drama, which I will explain later. Huh? Because uh, from our understanding of this when we found out. In fact, I related this with his Pranakan works of um, art and drama because of his the background that he uh, what call it uh, that he props. no uh, 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 the props that he did during the 1911 in a way gave him the confidence to, to start the Pranakan place which uh, later I'll explain to you. Thanks. Okay. Uh, just carry on with his life again. His business improved 
when news went round that he was an excellent portrait artist. Not only did he paint his subject in the exact likeness of the person, but his portrait also reflected the person's personality and social status. In the 1920s and 1930s, Lao Kui Song was, an act, was active in the Garden Club in Singapore. It was a social club for the intelligentsia of Singapore. It was here that he has so socialized with rich and famous people like Sir Song Ong Siang, Dr. Lee Moon King, Go Hood Kiat, Sia Liang Sia, Lim Nee Soon, and so on. The rich and the famous in the region, and also the royal families from Malaya, formed the bulk of his clientele at that time. In 1924, he painted the portrait of one of the richest men in this region, and that was Wee Tiong Ham, also popularly known as the Sugar King of Jawa for $3,500, which was a very huge sum in those days. So what you see here uh, on the left is actually a portrait of Lo Kui Song, uh, a portrait by Lo Kui Song of Wee Tiong Ham. So this portrait was actually uh, was last known to be hung in his family uh, author. So I think the family wants to know where it is. So if anyone is going to Samarang, please let them know or take a photo and send it to us. <laughs> yeah. So I think one interesting thing uh, about this is that Wee Tiong Han was actually one of the first person or one of the first rich men or wealthy men to actually request to be dressed in a European fashion at that point in time. So in those days, Chinese were... Many Chinese were required to wear the Chinese attire in Java. And in 1889, he requested for approval to be dressed in a European fashion. And I think it is very notable that he himself, or not he himself, his family actually chose to represent him such as, or for him to be remembered as such uh, by, their, you know, by their descendants as well. Something to know about Wei Tiong Ham. In fact, uh, when I did a research with Richard, I found out that... Uh, Wee Tiong Ham was just not only rich, you know. He was a very fussy and particular person. Anybody who was working for him has to give 100% of effort. The driver and personal bodyguards that he had during that time had to come from South Africa. You cannot be anywhere else. When he had his lunch, Oh, sorry, his breakfast, it took two hours and there were more than 12 people to serve him. So the fact I mentioned this is because for my grandfather to even paint for Wee Tiong Ham or be associated with Wee Tiong Ham was really a great honour for a Singapore painter. And later I found out that how rich Wee Tiong Ham was, I, it was really amazing. When his favorite daughter was born as an infant, he hung a 50-carat diamond on her. That, uh, sorry, it's not 50, 80-carat diamond. You can check it out in the uh, Hui, Hui Lan's uh, biography. 
So uh, it was really amazing. I, I, I never heard of such things before. So I thought I would better tell you so that you can know how rich is rich. To me, rich is very rich. And when Uy Tiong uh, Ham bought a house for his uh, son-in-law, who was Wellington Koo, when he was uh, recalled, Wellington Koo was the ambassador to England from China. So the house he bought was not a house, it was a palace from the Ming dynasty. So that was how rich he is. So uh, with that, uh, I, I will not for, uh, talk too much. <laughs> so I think this kind of just shows the uh, importance of Lo Kui Song in the society at that point in time and the, regard, the high regard they actually hold for him as well. So this is uh, so. Next, we'll just show you a few other portraits that he did. So in the late 1920s, he painted a portrait of Sun Yat-sen, and this was likely based on a photograph. So this image was produced by a company that he opened, which is called the Modern Art Publishing Company, and he circulated and sold them as postcards and prints as well. So funds from the sale were directed towards the China Relief Fund. So another portrait that he did was the portrait of Tan Beng Sui that you can see in this gallery later on the right. So this painting you see here uh, used to be in the Tan Kim Seng house and it was found abandoned. And at that point in time, nobody knew who the artist was. And the portrait was donated to the National Museum by the property company taking over the house. So National Museum made a call out to the public for information on the artist and Mr. Lo Kui Song answered the call. And by then, he was about 80 plus, And he actually recorded that he was paid $800 for the portrait. And he was commissioned to hang uh, this portrait in one of the companies. Yep. And then uh, this other portrait was uh, it's the portrait of Queen Elizabeth II. So in 1953, he was commissioned to paint a portrait by the Malacca Hainanese Association. And other portraits that he did uh, included the oil paintings of the Grand Chamberlains, the King of Siam, Vajiravut then, and also uh, the portrait of uh, Dr. Tagore, both in 1924. So this is the portrait of Aubun Hao, also the brother of Aubun Pao, the founder of Tiger Balm Gardens, now known as Hopper Villa. So what you see here are also uh, advertisements that he did for he did as well for uh, and you can actually see from here from the tagline and also the line work that he was a very it was quite an accomplished artist and also a very humorous man as well yeah I quite like the from a close observation health is really wealth in that sense yeah so um for, just to put it into context so it was not uncommon for artists to work in the ever advertising industry. For instance, uh, Zhang Wuji, who's also displayed in this gallery as well, worked in the advertising industry as well, as this kind of provide them with a means to support themselves. And other portraits, is a portrait of Tengku Abdul Rahman. And, yep. yep. So maybe would, add, uh, would Richard like to say something about the Eastern Illustrated Review that he also published? We did some research and we found out that uh, in 1918, Lao Kui Song with two other partners started the Eastern Illustrated Review. It was at, uh, the address was 47 and 49, the arcade at Raffles Place. Kui Song would sketch most of the advertisements, 
such as that of the Japanese Kirin beer advertisement and the Straits uh, Settlements War Loan advertisement. He was also the cartoonist for this magazine and the Eastern Illustrated Review was sold in major bookshops in Singapore, Malaya, Hong Kong, Shanghai, and even as far as uh, Yokohama. So also just to add on is that Eastern Illustrated Review was one of the earliest pictorial magazines. So just to give you an idea of some of the contents that was in the that is in the review, it's uh it includes things like articles on Malay witchcraft, German submarines, and also social news such as a uh, fashionable wedding as well. Yeah. So, but you can see from like all these comics that he has a concern for like local and global events. For instance, this is an advertisement for the purchase of war bonds to kind of help out in the efforts for World War I. Would you want to say something about the Empire Studio? Actually, my grandfather was uh, very good at marketing also. You can see that uh, he advertised a lot in the newspaper. Because I, we also found out that uh, during that time, he had a lot of competition in uh, photographic uh, shops, uh, studios, you know. Along the, in the area where his, sh his shop was, there were at least another two more competitors. So he knew to survive, even at that time, you need to pay for advertisement. That's why you see so many of his Empire Studio uh, advertisements came out in the local newspapers at that time. Uh, he started Empire Studio uh, in July 1920 and it was situated at uh, 1B Orchard Road. People would flock there to take their pictures in London style. What is London style for him? It's plain background with shading, with the people standing light, an impressive portrait. That was the way he, he did his, his work. And with the closure of the famous photo studio, G.R. Lambert Limited, this company was very famous uh, in the whole of Southeast Asia and even in uh, Asia and Europe. The Empire Studios business flourished even more. My grandfather made more money. Empire Studio was also open, you know, during Chinese New Year, so that people and their family can take photos during this auspicious holiday. So it indicates that my grandfather was very hardworking. Although he was already doing well, he was willing to work during the Chinese uh, New Year holidays. I would just like to add on as well, you can see his marketing skill in the sense that he does not only just do studio photography, he also do outdoor and night photography. And he also sells picture postcards of celebrities or important governors as well. And I think he, he was said to have been one of the first to employ uh, Japanese to retouch and color photographs. So you see an example here that was donated to the NUS Museum. And this belongs to the family. So maybe Richard or Arthur want to say something about this photo? <laughs> One more quick note. 
Okay. Uh, the second lady from the left, it was my auntie, my third auntie. We call her Sako. Uh, he got married to this young gentleman at that time. And we understand that uh, the bridegroom, the bridegroom's father was one of the shareholders, big shareholders in the cold storage uh, company during that time. Uh, we got this picture when we visited our Sako when she was alive. She's no more alive, alive now. And she was very happy that we were interested in this kind of things, you know. And she was also very happy that we, we took great interest in uh, checking out the history of my grandfather's uh, art. Because my grandfather's children were not so interested in this. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, thanks. So I think many of these uh, photos by Empire Studio is not, uh, the location is not known to us, but uh, thankfully we can see some uh, examples on the newspapers. So you kind of shows that his photos were actually also circulated in newspapers of the time. And you can see the name there, uh, Empire Studio Limited, and kind of shows the outdoor photography, studio photography, which is outdoor again. Yeah, and also a funeral of the late Mr. Ku Chong Singh. So just now you saw images of the funeral of uh, Wee Tiong Ham. So those were photos taken by his studio as well. Yeah, and this is a studio photography on somebody's wedding. So would Arthur like to speak about his other activities? I, I wanted to show uh, the audience uh, about uh, some of the cartoons that he did, especially the abuse. Uh, okay, okay. Uh, the abuse. This is what we found in the archives uh, in the National, li National Library. National right? Library. Uh, uh, it struck me that uh, this evil-looking... Evil uh, let me stand up and show. Sorry. This evil-looking face. Uh, when... When I com I saw a movie, uh, Spider-Man, which is uh, in the year 2000, they created an enemy for Spider-Man. This was called a Green Goblin. So if you check out Green Goblin and you put the face next to this face, you'll be surprised that uh, this is done in 1919. And that was done in 2001, around 200, uh, year 2000. So it amazes me that uh, my grandfather had such a vision that was almost 100 years ago. <laughs> then uh, the other one is the Kirin beer. Yeah, Kirin beer. This is also taken from the 1911, right? No, sorry, 19, 1919. 1919. Uh, Kirin beer advertisement done by, by Lo Song. But when I look at this, it reminds me of Campbell Soup, uh, Andy Warhol, done in, uh, I think, 1990s. Oh, sorry, let me get the next one. <laughs> Andy Warhol's work for pop art. So, uh, 1961, sorry. 
Campbell Soup advertisement. So, uh, as I said, more, there's more to learn from my grandfather. Uh, although it's not the, the end yet, but uh, there are more things to come. Thanks. So, I think he's also involved in other activities such as a playwright. Mm -hmm. And also, he, of course, continued on with his practice of like painting scenes for stage plays, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the 1920s, uh, he set up the Merrillex. Um, the Merrillex is a Pranakan Baba music and drama group. He was then the director and play writer of the association. By this time, uh, Lokwe Song was out of um, trouble. He was already very successful already in his artworks and his uh, other businesses, meaning that he's, he was already financially secured during that time. But he never forgot the poor, the underprivileged, and the world around him. The Marilettes performed in Singapore, Malaya, and Penang, and was mostly in aid of charity. The plays that were done by the Marilettes were very successful and uh, a lot of money was collected for a lot of funds. I will name them later. Uh, as I look back, uh, why was it successful? It was because it depicted the real lives of the Pranakan especially and uh, the superstition uh, involved in the... Uh, he wanted to bring out the... the superstitious uh, um, beliefs in the society. In 1926, uh, in aid of the Singapore Chinese Girls' School and Chiang Tik School, uh, his play Between Love and Honour uh, collected quite a huge amount. In 1927, he did uh, Love and Honour again, this time for the European Union funds. Is it? Lo sorry, local union funds. Then uh, the Fortune Teller um, in 1926 was in aid of the Singapore and South Malaya Boy Scouts Association. 1928, they played the Fortune Teller again. And it was for Chungling High School in Penang. Then in 1930, um, the fortune teller was performed again. Um, this time for Temple Fund of uh, Turo Road and Jing Kyong Temple Building Funds. Later on in 1928, also the unfortunate bluffer uh, was also for the aid of uh, Geylang Girls School Building Fund. In all, um, sorry, Si Kiam Si Kiam Siap in 1937 was also for the aid for China Relief Funds. So these are only the known uh, plays and charities that, that we found out that he did. Uh, I believe there are more. Uh, we'll do more research on that. 
So just to contextualize this, I mean, it all these funds that I mean, it, all these fundraising efforts does not just demonstrate that he's uh, he's very generous and very big-hearted, but it also demonstrates that to him, ethnicity. I mean, to him, he really cares for his society, regardless of whether you know they are Europeans or China or even you know or even yeah or even Malays, for instance. And you, so they his concerns were really quite broad-ranging as well. So I think maybe you want to go on with uh, yeah. how he okay. accepted his later part of his life, basically. Correct. Uh, having done all the, the acting and the arts and all this, uh, in 1936, he had a vision of uh, God talking to him and uh, he got converted to Christianity. Um, it wasn't till uh, 1938 uh, he became a lay preacher and later on uh, a pastor. From Singapore, he was sent uh, to Malacca to help establish a church in uh, Malacca, this time to uh, pastor in Pranakan language. I believe this was the first Pranakan church in Malacca to uh, have a Pranakan congregation there. So he had to uproot his family. And when I read this article, uh, I calculated uh, at what age did he uproot. It was, uh, he was already 47 years old then when he gave up everything and followed the luck. So, I think uh, when he became a staunch Christian, very serious about Christianity, don't joke with him about Christianity, you know. <laughs> he also started painting portraits of Jesus and other religious saints. Uh, he actually became the artist of God. So these are some of his uh, paintings that we have in our collection. And in 2014, you actually went to Malacca to seek out other paintings that he did, right? Yeah. So do you want to tell us a bit about that trip that you did? Actually, we were planning to go to Malacca for quite some time. But as you know, uh, I live in Australia many years ago already. My brother was in Singapore. So we had to arrange a time that we can go together with our spouses, Gloria and Grace. So we managed to set a time and uh, what we want to see. Because as a young man, as a young boy, my my auntie, you know, used to, when I visited Malacca, she used to bring me to see this, this club, that club, that church. Oh, your grandfather did this, your grandfather did that. So I faintly remembered where the paintings he had done. Where were they? So we did research. Okay. But we couldn't find where the coronation, Queen Elizabeth II picture, we couldn't find. We checked with the Malacca authorities, but they couldn't 
tell us at all. Even the association that requested my grandfather to paint or commissioned my grandfather to paint couldn't tell us anything. More than we don't know, we don't know, you know. But at the end of the day, we went there. We didn't want to drive because Malacca roads are not 30 years ago, you know. <laughs> when you're stuck, means you're stuck. So we hired a taxi man and we, we knew the addresses of where the paintings were. So we managed to get this taxi man who was very uh, good. When we told him this road, he says, oh, sure, sir, I know where. So we managed to visit uh, three or four, four areas, three or four places, you know, and we found paintings like that, you know, done by my grandfather. Uh, this, this painting, this painting was actually in uh, one of the very old associations in Malacca. It is uh, actually the St. Francis uh, Association. When I was shown this painting as a very young boy, I still vividly remembered it because I was so fascinated with the style my grandfather did, you know. And it was very nice. If you see it live, it's very nice. I would like to own it. <laughs> but unfortunately, the association didn't want to sell. So we managed to find out where the new association's uh, uh, place was. And the taxi man brought us there. Uh, maybe I'll try to tell you about this uh, man, you know, who is very popular and famous in Malacca. Yeah, um, because I have never seen the painting before. Uh, Richard was told about it. Then uh, when we went to uh, San Francisco uh, Association, we saw, but before, before that, I, I did a checkup on who this man was. He was actually a World War II hero, um, very good friend of Lo Kui Song. In fact, he was a sportsman. Uh, he started many, uh, he, and he was a learned man. He was a librarian, uh, president of a Rotary Club in uh, Malacca. And he was also a teacher in San Francisco. So what happened to him was, he was uh, listening to the radio during the Japanese war. Uh, the BBC. Then somebody reported him. And he was caught by the Japanese police. And got executed. But what is amazing uh, is that uh, let me read uh, okay Parmadasan he was in the cell uh, awaiting execution and uh, he said that the the Kampitai tortured him and finally sentenced him to hang he said that I have no regrets. I've always cherished the British sportsmanship, justice, and the civil service as the finest things in an imperfect world. Sorry. 
I died for this. My enemies failed to conquer my soul. I forgive them for what they did in my poor, frail body. To my dear old boys, tell them that their teacher died with a smile on his lips. The qualities of sportsmanship and justice and beyond the red, red tape, the essential decency of British administration were bred in Freddie's bones. Uh, sorry. Uh, oh, I got to redo again. <laughs> sorry. But anyway, uh, this was what the, the, the Palmer Dasan felt and was happy that uh, he was in an era where that although the world was not perfect, but at least there was some law and order. So after seeing that painting, um, when we look at the background of uh, the portrait, you can see all the qualities of Pamadasan. So this was actually commissioned by the OSIS. Uh, so the association commissioned Lo Kui Song to, for this painting, for it to be hung within the uh, association as commemoration of, uh, his, of his heroic qualities, basically. Uh, this piece was also unveiled by uh, the Straits Settlement Governor, uh, H.G. Hamlet, uh, after the painting was done and uh, was uh, being unveiled then, uh, I think in 1953. Yeah, it's still in the association if you want to visit it in Malacca. Thanks. So I think we are at the closing of this talk. So this, uh, just like to end off with uh, a sketch or some quotes written by Lu Kui Song. So I believe this was given to the or the brothers by a friend, I believe. And I think we can also see through this presentation that uh, their dedication towards the research into their family history and who their grandfather is. And also we can also see the myriad artistic activities pursued by Lu Kui Song. Not only was he just a painter, he was an illustrator, a comic artist, a teacher, photographer, and also a publisher. But we also see the importance of his networks that enabled him to paint portraits of many famous and well-known personalities. And through their work that they have done, and you, have, you may have also noticed that I have used quite a, uh, we have used quite a bit of uh, newspaper articles, screenshots of digitized newspaper. It's really... Um, quite difficult to try to recover histories of people uh, in the pre-war period because some of some or even most of the works may have been missing. And I also want to commend the both of them because basically they did all this research before the times of digitization of the newspapers. So if anyone has looked through microfilms, it's very tiring on the eyes and it really takes a lot of time to actually go through each and uh, every one of them. So... And I would just like to end off that uh, I think more research needs to be done in, uh, on cultural and artistic activities before the war. For instance, uh, the modern art publishing company by Lo Kui Song, I wasn't able to find out anything much more than the fact that he actually circulated uh, you know, portraits of Sun Yat-sen. So maybe I would just like to invite the both of you to have some uh, ending remarks. <laughs> okay, we have this little part uh, which 
many people do not know. It's a hearsay, but I think it's true. Uh, according to my grandfather's children, my aunties, my parents, my uncles, uh, Lao Kui Song was commissioned actually to paint the Sultan of Brunei, the richest man during that time. Uh, the Sultan of Brunei and his son in 1967, before the coronation of the Sultan's son. But Lao Kui Song, uh, okay, traveled to Brunei to work on this project. He was already 78 years old, you know. <laughs> and in the unfamiliar environment, he could not meet the challenge. He flew back to Singapore, you know, and was very sad and didn't want to talk about it. So, anyway, he died at the age of 93 in uh, Singapore at Tan Tok Sing Hospital. Yeah, thank you for coming. And uh, before, if... One thing I'm sure that if my grandfather was sitting here, he would tell you all, thanks ladies and gentlemen for coming. God bless you all. He will say that. Uh, thanks everyone. Uh, today we also have with us uh, Miss Juliana Lim who helped to discover some of um, Lo Kui Sung's missing paintings and she would like to share some of her stories um, as well. So I was working in the Ministry of Culture in 1981-82 and uh, I got a call one day from a property developer. I think it was Quark Properties. And they were on the brink of de demolishing uh, the Hotel Morningside. And I suppose it was Panglima, Panglima Prang, which is a Tanjot Kim house. And they said like, that there are paintings in the house that the museum may be interested in. So I was looking after visual arts and music promotion. And I straight away called up uh, the curator of anthology, Mrs. Eng Siok Chi, and the conservator, uh, Lim Chong Kwek. And we drove down to the house. It was totally dilapidated, had been ravaged by dealers, right? And we found the painting of Tan Jiak Kim with a fan in his hand and um, a painting of a, a bald man, which I thought was Tan Kim Singh, but later I learned was Tan Bing Kiang, Tan, Tan Bing Sui, right here. So we took the paintings back to the museum, of course, for conservation, right here. Then we went public and asked for, look for the painters of the paintings, right? And up pops your dad, okay? He was, a, uh, he was such a joy. This is a National Museum building. At the time, there was a, a board, you know, in, in the next building, there was a boardroom, right here. And he popped up and he said, I'm the brother of the man, I'm the brother of the painter of the Tang Jiak Kim painting, but never talk about himself as a painter, right? Yeah. So I recall this very uh, smallish man wearing Chinese with loose pants and a cap, right? And he was, he was such a jolly man. He was dancing. He was dancing with me, I mean, you know, and uh, singing, you know, uh, just so happy that uh, we discovered the paintings and uh, sharing by his brother and himself. And it was one of my best memories of working in a job, which was a government job, right? And uh, discovering the paintings and meeting him, such a happy, contented, uh, pure individual, you know? And he shared about the Marylats as well, about his musical, yes. And that's how I, I then realised that, you know, we had emphasised the Nanyang artists, you know? But never talk about the 
the uh, the early artist like himself and his brother, and I'm I'm so glad that now attention is being paid to them, because we really at the time were very Nanyang artist centered. Our art history seemed to begin 1935 with Nanyang artists. Nothing before that, right? So that was my big education into the pre-Nanyang artists. Your your dad. I'm so pleased to meet you. And I know he died a few months. I know he died a few months later. I saw the obituary. I thought, wow, I'm just so lucky to have met him. Right. But thank you for sharing. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, if you're interested, the next in gallery session happens on the 20th of April. So these happen on the third Saturday of every month. Next month's session will be uh, Edgar Talosan Fernandez um, in conversation with our curator, Clarissa Chikamko. So we hope to see some of you there again. And thank you very much. Thanks very much to Richard and Arthur for being with us. Thank you. You have been listening to the Padang Sessions from National Gallery Singapore. Find more of our podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us for updates and new episodes every month. To learn more about our programs at the gallery, visit nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Mariel Chi, Ernie Martha, and Tamaris Go from National Gallery Singapore. The music you heard is composed by Javon Chandra. I'm Joyce Chung. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.